you know, I've been really looking forward to this chat um, all week, Gary, getting the chance to meet you. Um, you know, I've been reading a lot more. All the stuff you sent me about um, your resume is absolutely incredible. You, you've definitely been in the wars, let's be honest. Um, I've, I've had a few hits. A few hits, that, that's for sure. But from one sportsman to another, um, you know, it's, it's great to have this chat about an issue that I think we're both passionate about in both of our sports. Um, that um, I think this year in particular, it's, 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 it's come up a lot more than recent years, hasn't it? Um, so before we get into um, the topic of concussion in sport, I want to ask um, just, just for you to tell us a bit more about you, about Gary, um, because I know a lot about you, but the viewers that will be listening in don't know a lot about you. So Gary, tell us a bit about you. Fantastic. Okay. Um, easiest way of describing me is that I'm a bully's worst nightmare because I am the geek who can fight. Um, sporting history, uh, I've got career headlines of being, career highlights of being a world champion 13 times across kickboxing, Thai boxing and jiu-jitsu. I've been British team or, or UK champion at K1, Wushu Kwan and of course judo, which is my original uh, sport and combat sports. Um, I've also been there at the origins and development of mixed martial arts, where I competed as an international. Uh, yeah, I've been around a little bit with my, my sports career, had over a thousand competitive bouts. Um, and yeah, my, my brain has, has received one heck of a lot of hits. And to bring you sort of full circle on the, the sort of the, the, one of the main subjects of, of, of today's podcast, uh, I went back a couple of years ago and I started to uh, do my PhD in the behavioral effects of head impact in combat sports athletes. Basically, what have I done to my head? What have I done to other people's? And how is it affecting us? And I'm really blessed, actually, uh, that. I, I, I don't just have supervisors uh, on my uh, PhD. Normally you get two or three supervisors when you're doing a PhD. I've got three supervisors. Uh, I've got an unofficial fourth supervisor who's a brilliant mentor. Um, and I'm part of a much wider scholarly team looking at similar subjects in other areas, in other sports, such as rugby, uh, football, uh, cycling, uh, the ski sports, we've got a guy doing that. Um, it's, it's, and it's fascinating how other sports all compare to the, the combat sports. So yeah, I'm, I'm a geek um, and I'm a geek with a sporting background uh, and I still love to keep in shape and put the whippersnappers back in their boxes, but I can't get away from it all. And I've got my glasses on today uh, because I am indeed a geek. Uh, but yeah, that's going to mean a, a potted summary. You know, I can imagine you, Gary, the fact that I, I can actually imagine a, a school, a school um, playground scenario when there's a kid getting bullied and then you just come in and then we play Eye of the Tiger and you're just coming in with that big leg and just whoosh, whacking it across that bully's face. I can imagine you in that scenario. It was really funny, though, because it's never actually been that way. Um, because I've, I've, I've never been, I've got a sort of a, I don't know, I'm probably on the autistic spectrum. I've always got to do the right thing and follow the rules. Um, and it's been a big sort of thing in my life that I've got to get things right. 
Um, so much so that when I've discovered that what I've been saying and doing has been wrong, I've had to change it because I, I, I sort of preserve being right above all else. Um, so it means my, I've had to go 180 on some of my opinions over the years, uh, which led me to do the, the, the doctorate. You know, I've just spent my life hitting people and getting hit in the head. And now I realise, oh, heck, what have I been doing? Uh, what can we do to make it safer? But yeah, I, I, I've had very little by way of sort of incidences on the street because I've had the ability to control the situation, either manipulating them psychologically um, or, or just basically putting them back in their box without having to hurt them. So, yeah, I've, I've never, I, you know, it's little things like when a guy steps forward with a punch and you just like parry it and sweep the feet and they're on the floor and you look at them and say, I can hit as well. If you want another go, I, I'll hit back if you like, you know, making them feel really sort of humiliated and it, it puts them back in their boxes. You know, before you took all of these knocks, what really was the motivation to get into the um, into the art of jujitsu and, and mixed martial arts sports? What was the sort of ambition for you to get into that in the first place? Oh, it's really, really funny. My, my, my brother was older than me by 18 months. And when he turned six, he started judo and he could do breakfalls. It's all I wanted to do. So the moment I turned six, I started judo as well and did the breakfalls. And that continued through to, uh, I stopped competition in, in, in 1991. I was born in 1970, stopped in 91. Um, but in 88, when I was 18, so I stopped when I was 21, but when I was 18, um, a couple of Kung Fu uh, points kickboxers turned up at uh, uh, the judo club and I, I became close friends really quickly. Uh, we used to work nightclub doors together and such like at a young age uh, and I talked them into going to the French multinations, a big judo tournament in Compiègne in France and they didn't do too badly for people who had only been doing judo for six months. So they said hey we've done one of your, your, your competitions, you've got to do one of ours now. So I took up um, points kickboxing they rapidly became like continuous kickboxing because I was particularly bad at points kickboxing and then like continuous basically there's nothing light about it so I switched to full contact kickboxing and then basically um, I, I started in sport jiu-jitsu putting kickboxing together with with um, uh, judo and it was the forerunner of course to mixed martial arts um, and I was doing shoot fighting uh, if I was asked to do something I would do it um, and then that just you know, literally actually, um, so I was asked to do a couple of mixed martial arts matches. Um, Lee Hasdall uh, did, uh, I think it was Night of the Samurai uh, in the, uh, the mid to late 90s. And uh, I remember, remember doing those fights and then just because I could, uh, I won one and I drew one. Um, I remember knocking someone out with an open-handed uh, palm. Joe Carno, the, the British Ballet Tudo champion, I knocked him out with a, with a slap, basically, because it's open-handed to the face then. Um, you couldn't punch bare knuckle to the head. Uh, and then uh, with mixed martial arts, I, I got asked to step in at late notice to fight Bob Sapp at Cage Rage. So with only a few weeks notice, suddenly I was fighting this, uh, you know, 170 kilo behemoth of a guy. Um, and I thought, right, OK, yeah, of course I'm going to do this. Why not? Uh, and he would have been a really easy opponent for me. Um, and instead, he decided not to get on the plane, decided that I wasn't the bum he thought I was. So I was actually a K1 fighter and trained in the Netherlands with the top K1 guys. So that's when Bob, uh, when uh, Tank Abbott stepped in and suddenly had a real fight on my hands, which was quite entertaining. So, yeah, just basically um, my motivation was if someone said, give it a go, I'll give it a go. And Because why not? Yeah, yeah. So I, I would say I'm a, a, a medium. So with everything that I've done, 
I still consider myself a medium-sized fish who occasionally got to swim with the very biggest fish, but he still remains as a medium-sized fish. I spread myself across so many martial sports, but it's what we did back then. Could you do this, Gary? Yeah, why not? You know, and I'm not, I'm not alone in that. You know, other sort of uh, kickboxing, so I wouldn't say pioneers because that was a generation before me. But uh, um, people like Ricky Nicholson and people like that, uh, um, Wayne Turner, we would just get a shout, "Can you do this?" And we're like, "Yeah." And, and and you know, three days later, we'll be fighting in Ohio, fighting the USA champion kind of thing, opening final Schwarzenegger. It was literally everything at the drop of a hat. Can you do it? Yeah, let's do it because we were, we were, we were stupid like that. <laughs> And, you know, looking, if we look back on, on, on back in the day, you know, back at how martial arts sports were back, um, you know, years and years ago, when we look into concussion, what was the sort of laws back in the day there? What, what was it? How did they go about, you know, head injuries in, you know, the 70s and the 80s and the 90s? I mean, what was it looking, if, if we're going to start to go on a journey to where we are right now, let's start off right at the beginning. What was it like and how did, People, how did martial artists, you know, cope with themselves if they found themselves in that scenario? We suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> it was a, it was a you know, we're in a hypermasculine sports and um, in the sort of a homophobic 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, you know, everything was man up, suck it up, come on, powder puff. You know, it's very hypermasculine. Um, and uh, combat sports preserve and, and prize sort of hypermasculinity, you know, the toughest of the tough, you know. Uh, so basically, we would, we would just, you know, get on and keep on moving. And when I compare what happens even now in combat sports to other sports, um, some people have a career-ending injury and they describe it and they write about a bit of autoethnography about how they had these headaches and they were worried and they stopped and you know they had these visions and bits of stars that they could see if they moved their head fast from left to right and I'm thinking that's just a normal session <laughs> the, the resilience and the, the the silly and crazy approach that we had to it was if you take a knock you get up and carry on um, we just had no idea of what was happening. Um, and in fact, it's only in the sort of the last sort of 15, 20 years, we've kind of realized what the repetitive head impacts have been doing. Although combat sports, we've kind of known about it since uh, uh, punch drunk, dementia pugilistica, yeah. chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which was coined in the 50s. Uh, we've always known that, that, that getting hit in the head is not doing us any favours, no. and it creates behavioural effects. Uh, but we just, you know, back in the 70s, 80s and 90s, we just, you know, we just got on with it. And in fact, you know, we still get on with it today. It's just that now there's this little bit of uh, realisation of, oh, heck, what we're doing is, is no longer good for our health. But hey, if you tell a fighter getting hit in the head is no, no good for your health, they already know that. So sort of twisting it around on a modern term, uh, in, in the modern uh, um, era, uh, I've worked hard with my, my scholarly team. Um, and in fact, it's my professor, Professor Eric Anderson. Uh, they said, Gary, your, your audience will never listen to you if you talk yeah. about health but they will listen if you talk about performance. So basically every hit to the head will decrease a fighter's performance ability. 
it will slow our sensation, the incoming sensory input, our perception of it, how we then process it, and the resultant actions that we've got will be even slower than before. So if you're doing hard sparring, for example, sure, you're getting skill acquisition, timing, distance in movement, all the rest of it. But every time you get hit in the head, it's taken away from that ability. So it's like if you're doing hard sparring, it's three steps forward and two steps back performance wise and really screwing up your health for the rest of your life. Uh, so I'm thinking, hang on, surely there's a better way where we don't take these backward steps and improve our health. So that my, my sort of one of my many catchphrases at the moment is it used to be train hard, fight easy. But hey, let's move towards train clever fight easier and live healthier at the same time you know what gary you've, you're a man of many catchphrases 100 percent <laughs> man of many catchphrases but i want you to describe to me the first ever time you took a knock i want to describe I want, I want you to describe that time to me the first time you had a knock and once you had that knock tell me exactly your experience with it and whether you were contemplating being in this sport did you have any feelings of okay, and this is kind of scared me a bit. Maybe this is not where I want to be. Or did you just decide, or back in the day, as you mentioned, it was a kind of, you know, it was a masculine time that you had a point to prove that you wanted to get through it and just feel and, you know, prove to the people that were watching you that you deserve to be in this sport. It's funny that they, I, I've got a memory that pops straight up. Probably not the first time I've had a, yeah, definitely not the first time I've had a knock to the head, but the first time that there's that, that real relevance to this was when I switched from uh, judo uh, to, to kickboxing. And the first time I really, you know, to use a northern verb, the first time I really got twatted, um, you know, two twats, that's the northern verb, isn't it? Uh, I twat, you twat, they twat, we all twat. You know, use the twat that stick. Very it's, common. You know, it's a northern term. Um, I, I got hit in the head and I got hit in the head with a really sharp shot. And it was funny, it was the first time I'd taken actually, uh, uh, it was a kick, it was a round kick from Richard Devaney. We called him Truck. Uh, truck by name, truck by nature. He'd literally run right over you. Um, and this, this really fast round kick came up and really gave me a smack on the side of the head. Funnily from judo, my body was incredibly robust. Judo, we used to get pounded into the judo max time and time again, thrown, thrown, thrown. My body could absorb literally anything. It was the first time I'd been twatted in the head. I remember thinking, what the heck is this? And the world seemed to slow down. Um, Everything went in a super slow motion as everything, all these new sensations were like uh, being experienced and processed. Um, and, and I remember, right, this is it. And then I just dug deep and carried on, staying what the, let's get it right way around, what Marines would stay on task and the paratroopers would stay on point, uh, but staying you know, at the task at hand. Um, and I just carried on. Um, and at that point in time, I realized that I could get through it. I did have that resilience. Um, now I know about edge work and how performance is built on mistakes. You find the edge of your ability, you exceed it in a way which is obviously safe and you don't do yourself harm. And then you fill that gap and you increase the edge of your ability. So you're constantly pushing the edge, constantly pushing boundaries, constantly improving. And that was a major point with me, whether where I realized that, hey, I could push the edge, I could push the boundary, I could carry on. I did have that resilience. I didn't freeze and panic and drop going, oh my God, what's this? I just basically continued doing the job. 
that I was there to do. I stayed on task. Uh, so at that point in time, I realised that yeah, I, I could cut it in the the, the sort of the striking combat sports, um, and yeah, I just cracked on. Now, in all of your experiences in judo, kickboxing, um, mixed martial arts. Now, this is an interesting question, Gary. But out of all of them, which one would you say you've had the most knocks in? Oh, I would actually say all of them. Mm. So. Uh, with judo, for example, we'd get thrown hundreds of times a night into the judo mat. So we get biomechanical force transfer. Although our heads didn't strike the mat, the force and the energy from those throws still goes through to the head. So if you're training four, five, six times a week with repetitively getting pounded into the ground with, with, with throws, uh, that's obviously going to create you know, this, this accumulation, this aggregation of, of energy hitting the brain. Um, and then I was a particularly stupid kickboxer, to say the least. Um, again, the hyper-masculinity of combat sports, I would prize hard sparring. And we used to have something called big boy sparring on a Friday afternoon. We'd go over to Jesse Saunders' shin kick my tie. First time, uh, he had a big fighter, Tarek, and he didn't have any heavyweights. So he said, Gary, can you come over and spar? We arranged like four o'clock on a Friday and it became big boy sparring because we're two big boys sparring. And then Chris Batchelder and a few other big boys would come on over. Uh, Yarrick would come all the way from Cambridge to spar with his big boy sparring. David, big old Polish Dave, as we call him, um, he would come out and we'd pound each other. It was 100% flat out sparring. And then little guys would come along and mix in. And obviously, again, they don't have a big, big set of plums. They have big balls, these guys. So they'll be big boys as well and join in with the big boy sparring. And we'd prize, you know, it, it, it didn't feel right. We didn't go home with a groggy head. You know, and like a like I've got a severe hangover after sparring because we've been hitting each other so hard. So all every single combat sport I've done would have caused brain injury, uh, brain damage, which is uh, 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 injury. Sorry, brain damage. Brain damage is um, damage at the cellular level. Injury is when it aggregates to cause dysfunction. Every hit to the head in combat sports is likely to cause brain damage. Uh, and almost all of them are gonna cause injury, which is dysfunction. And, and I would say that every single one of them, unfortunately, didn't do me any favors. Um, and it's the same with most contact sports. So we're, yeah. You, you look back, you look at, you know, you look at the times today, uh, there's a lot of, you know, you see it in schools and universities, they are, they are teaching athletes who want to get into these into these sports that taint the well they're teaching them about the dangers of you know of brain injury but what was it like back in the day what was it like when you were first starting out were they teaching you the consequences and risks of getting into the sport but you know if they did let's say if they did back in the back in the early days of when you were starting your career do you think that a lot of athletes in those sports would have hesitated to join in if they knew the consequences of, you know, what could happen, because the athletes today that they're, they're going for it, you know, that you know, you'll see in all these sports that they're doing it. But you think it would have been different back in the day? I think it would be exactly the same back in the day. Uh, you know, back 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 in the, in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, um, there, there was such a, a lack of information and knowledge about brain injury. There's no way that we could have given informed consent to, to participate. We just didn't know what we were doing to ourselves. Uh, it was so limited. And even today, the research is showing that even at professional level, even at UFC level, where the fighters are taken and given brain injury training, uh, there's 
still a lack of knowledge and understanding, a lack of perception, uh, a lack of reporting intentions. So even today, fighters still aren't clued up on it. And to be honest, the the, the it's the the uh, the research is increasing at an exponential rate. And what we know this year is ten times more than we knew last year. So you've got to stay really current to get up to speed with exactly what is going on, the effects, and and, and the best way of, of dealing with impacts when we get it. Yet, um, let's just say that the combat sport athletes, uh, we're a particular kind, we're a particular type of people, all with our own unique um, uh, intrinsic and extrinsic motivations for, for doing our combat sports. Um, I'll suggest combat sports find us just as much as we find combat sports and likely would have the same number of people doing it. Um, uh, or, you know, the same people would still do it as they are now, um, back then. Uh, it's just that we, we do what we do and we don't consider the consequences of our actions. You can just look at kids on a little pump track for their BMXs doing their flips and stuff. There's no way I'd attempt that now. No, no way. Now. I would never attempt yeah, that. No way. But yeah. what, what was the... We know that it's getting a lot. It's, take, it's being taken a lot more seriously now. But what was the what was the change? What was the changing of the guard to make you know people take this more seriously? When exactly was the time um, that concussion has been taken more seriously? And and do you believe it should? It, it's it's a bit too late. It should have been taken care of years and years ago. But for you, when was the time that you noticed it's been a, it's been taken a lot more seriously than it was? For me, um, it was uh, four years ago when I was tagged on an online forum to counter the views of my professor, Professor Eric Anderson, um, who was saying that uh, allowing a child to be hit in the head in combat sports is child abuse by definition. Um, I got called on as the credible Hulk. Uh, I back up on my rage with facts and figures to go and counter his views. Uh, and I found him incredibly engaging. Uh, he spoke at a very high geeky technical level and a very blunt level in ways that some people definitely needed to understand. Uh, I gave myself two weeks to prove him completely wrong, came back two weeks later and said he was being very conservative with his views. Actually, it's far worse than what he's saying. He's being kind and gentle. And yes, by CPSU, Child Protection and Sport Unit, NSPCC, uh, and all child safety and child welfare legislation. Yes, it is child abuse. We can't get away from that. And I'm like, bugger, I've just learned something that's going to 180 degree turn my way that I approach things now. And the moment I realized that I stopped head contact for everyone under the age of 16 in my uh, uh, kickboxing classes. Uh, two weeks after that, I stopped it for everyone under 18, as I realized that the legal definition of child is someone under the age of 18. And again, no, that, that's that's something I've always that's something I've always tried to um, put across is the fact that under 18 are still children. You know, at the same time, 13, 14, 15 are the same as 16 and 17. You, you, you can't change the law. You know, it's it's it, uh, the legal definition of a child is under the age of 18. So I, I you know, I think you, you definitely did the right thing there, but why, and it's important to keep the ch our children safe in, in, the, in these sort of scenarios, isn't it? You know, when it comes to this, because definitely. having something happen to them at such a young age, I'll, I'll take, take 15 years old, for example, if you have a 15 year old um, child who is aspiring to get into the sport, imagine if they took one bad knock, it could affect the rest of their career, couldn't it? 
it will affect the rest of their career. To give you an idea, I mean, children, uh, the brain, the, the human brain develops, it doesn't reach maturity until around 24, 25. And it's uh, vulnerable all the way through that, particularly at periods of uh, rapid advancement and rapid development. If you get a knock at the wrong time, whole areas of the brain may not come online properly. You, you're going to change the way that your brain is developing. Uh, people quite often say, yeah, but I'm okay. To which my response would be, compared to what? How would you be if you didn't have those repetitive head impacts? Uh, so what happens is every hit to the head will slow. Uh, so even um, the header, a header football, underarm throw of a football, standard football, head the ball six times. That's enough for testing to show that your brain ability slows, your cognition slows, it impairs your memory and it reduces your musculoskeletal control. In other words, it loses, it reduces control of your body. That's just six headers of a football, which is part of the issue that we've got with soccer. Uh, children's brains are particularly vulnerable and you never fully recover from a, a, a knock to the head in the combat sports. You never fully recover. It would always adversely affect you uh, from where you would have been without it. Um, it can create immediate effects, short-term chronic effects, like behavioral effects that then happen um, all the way through to the, the what scares me now, because I'm 50 heading that way, is the late effects. The earlier onset, more rapid development of neurodegenerative diseases. For example, you're more likely to have dementia earlier and more rapid onset of it. Alzheimer's, um, um, amylateral sclerosis or whatever it's called, uh, motor neuron diseases, um, Parkinsonism. It's more likely to start early and it's more likely to advance more quickly. Uh, and this is what's happening to kids in the for the future. Uh, we've also got the legal perspective and the criminal legal perspective is no child can consent to harm and no adult can consent to harm on a child's behalf. Uh, so that's why kids can join the army at 16, but can't actively serve until 18. I, I, still, I still don't think that they should be allowed to join the army until about 18. I, I, that's, that's what I've always believed in. I mean, it's just too young. Then They're just not, they're still, they're, my, my definition is they're still childlike. They're still children. Yeah. You know, and, and, they, and you see adults these days are about 24, 25, 26, who have that, still have that child mind. And you're thinking that if they have that child mind at that age, you can imagine what they're like at 16 or, or, or 17, you know, it's, 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 it, it flabbergasts me, but you mentioned football, Gary, which is, which is yeah. what I wanted to bring up because I am a, um, I'm a footballer, um, a goalkeeper. Now I've always, I've always thought to myself that, you know, the goalkeeper, it's one of those positions in, in the team that really doesn't have as much to do as the outfield players technically, but you look at an incident that happened with one of my, favorite goalkeepers of all time, Petr Cech, 2007, uh, where he had an incident with a player from Reading. And I think you might remember this, Gary, um, where he had a very bad head injury and had to wear that protective gear. So do you agree with the statement? I mean, football, this statement came out as well, saying that um, there's a lot more signs of dementia now coming from football do you think that's more risk with goalkeepers more than outfield players? Because if you're thinking they're contacting a lot with the ground, 
sometimes, yeah, mostly their heads don't contact with the ground, it's their bodies. But in some cases, you know, in some cases, it is possible. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a dose response. So basically, the more the more head impacts, the more um, biomechanical forces hit the brain, whether through the body getting an impact or through the head getting an impact itself. Uh, the more that you get, and the higher the magnitude of those impacts, the worse the damage. Uh, and most of the damage takes place in training in football rather than actually in games. If you think about how many times you kick a ball or head a ball in training compared to actually working game, on the yeah. uh, on the game so the more the players that do again it's like um, so the only practice doesn't make perfect practice makes permanent so what counts is deliberate practice getting things right um, so if you're just willy-nilly hitting the ball um, then you're going to do far more than thinking about exactly how are you going to do it how you want to play it the technique in other words doing deliberate heading practice, you need less headers in a football. So someone who's clever about the training will be heading the ball less, but being more effective than those just heading the ball, heading the ball, heading the ball. So players who head the ball, obviously are getting direct head impact. So that's gonna uh, uh, have an adverse effect. Uh, goalkeepers, you do run the risk. Uh, you are the, the crazy man on a football field who, or lady, a crazy person. Uh, it's some pretty damn tough ladies. Uh, now this is completely, yeah, I've got, I've, got, I've, got, I've got to say this from the combat sports side. It's like when you get a flick on the ear and the footballer collapses, holding his ear, screaming. It's like, babies. what? Just babies. Yeah, yeah, it's Neymar baby doing his rolling rolls, you know, along the, along, along the pitch. What's going on? Um, you know, combat sports is like, we look at them like, like really? What? But goalies, goalies have always been the ones that, 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 that get down and dirty. You're the ones diving at people's feet. You're the one who's got to go amongst the feet that are flying up, the heels kicking up, the force of a ball being kicked. You're meeting it. So you're possibly going to have less impacts to your head overall because there's less opportunity for you to head the ball, but there's more chance for the higher magnitude hits to happen. So it, I don't think a study's been done uh, yet as to which position will generally get more head impacts, but there is a difference in nature between it. Heading a football, uh, higher number, lower magnitude. Goalkeeper, lower number, sorry, uh, lower magnitude and high frequency for headers, higher magnitude uh, and lower frequency for, for goalkeepers. So it's, um, it's very individual, I think, about the numbers that you're going to get, but head impacts, let's limit it. Do you believe as well, Gary, the fact that you see a, you see a football player or a rugby player, because concussions, it's very big in rugby as well. Do you think it's right for a player to, it, it, yeah. let's say they do end up having a, a concussion sort of related injury on the field, but they don't get substituted and they have a very negative performance at, for the rest of the game and the fans give them fierce criticism for it. Is it right for that player to go and say it was because of the injury I received when it was clear that the medical staff said they were fine? They didn't take them off the pitch, so it's fine. Is it right for them to blame the injury for a negative performance? 
I'd be, I'd be, I'd be uh, kicking the medical staff for failing in their duty of care because uh, traumatic brain injury, when it becomes manifest, when we get the signs, which are the observable signs, the wobbly legs, the tonic posture of an arm staying up, the dazed looks and such like, they're the signs, the observable signs of traumatic brain injury. Symptoms will be subjectively experienced like foggy head, uh, headache, stuff like that. Uh, personally experienced. So we've got the difference between signs and symptoms. So if a player reports symptoms, they should be immediately withdrawn from play under the current rugby guidance. If they're displaying any signs of concussion, any signs of the traumatic brain injury, things that we can see, then they should be immediately removed from play for appropriate testing. Now, if they've got those signs, for me, that should be it for the end of the game because they're the initial signs, that's the initial damage, for example, the, uh, uh, the, sort of the, the axon may be breaking, the connection between neurons actually breaking. So that's causing the immediate effects that we're seeing. What's then happening is this whole neurometabolic cascade in the background, this battle of repair and damage taking place, which unfolds over minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, and even after a single concussion can still be detected over a year after that concussion. So if they're allowed to go back on the field, they've already got a weakened injury, uh, a weakened brain, and the injury is still unfolding and making worse. They will perform worse. They're more likely to have a second impact as a result. That second impact might result in second impact syndrome, which is a collection of behaviours where there's already a weakened injury, which is then made catastrophically worse. And rugby players, including a, a tragic case of a young, a young lad, people die from these second yeah, impact syndromes. Right. So it's a... Uh, yeah, they should never be allowed to go back on the, the field in the first place. But yeah, if you've got, you know, if you've got an injury, you have an injury. It's not really an excuse. It's going to be a contributing factor. And how would you rate the performances of our sports medical teams? How would you rate how they're dealing with situations? Because they can't say they can't say, oh, one great decision if one club, let's take Manchester United, I'm just picking a random, not because of what's happening in the in the papers. <laughs> uh, don't 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 uh, uh, condemn me, uh, Man United fans. But do you believe that you know you take one club, they make one good decision, but then have a bad decision? I mean, how would you rate? What what does a what are the important key factors that a medical team of a football team or a rugby team or or martial arts what is the, what are the key factors that they need when it comes to dealing with concussion situations what do they always need to have in their agenda first thing is independence um there's a, a, a colleague of mine uh, alex channon from brighton university has looked at combat sports um and it's uh, local and regional shows basically uh, and the, the medical attention is horrendous even when the medics are exceptional, they're overruled by the promoter and things like that. Um, we're in, in, so the combat sports is incredibly lacking. It's quite shocking uh, and quite, quite abhorrent at times as to what goes on. So if you've got a high level football team and they've employed a medic who's making a difficult call, are they being influenced by the crowd by their position, wanting to hold on to that position, the coach, the players themselves. Uh, 
even even with a, a referee in Thai boxing, uh, for example, the, the noise of the crowd influences referees' decisions. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the medics are an incredibly difficult position. So for them to do their job properly, they must have independence. Because if they don't have that independence, they're not free to make the um, um, objective call that they need to make. And I say objective rather than subjective. So they need to recognize a clear rationale, a clear set of the signs, a clear set of reported symptoms that you got that you're off, or I think they're, they're beginning replacement players now, aren't they? If you've got concussion, you know, you're off, you're assessed, you're going to get the right medical attention. We're not playing silly buggers. Uh, and they've got to be able to do that. They've got to be empowered to be independent, use rationale, uh, which is objective rather than subjective. In other words, clearly defined and defendable, uh, defendable, because uh, they will come under stick, obviously. Uh, and to do the right thing, to hold their ethics high. Um, you put those three things together, and I think the entire situation of the medical community in sports will improve. Um, speaking of that, speaking of that, the concussion, new, the, the new concussion substitute rule in football, is that a good step forward? Yeah, definitely. Um, because um, it keeps the game going, and it keeps the going, game going relatively fair because everyone's playing to the same rules. And it gives, um, there's more... There's more ability to pull an injured player off that pitch, remove them from the game. It's, it's like, a, it's like a, oh, it's okay, we can pull him off, let's get him assessed. We can put Bert on instead. Let's bring Jack off because he's had the head knock. Let's get him checked out. Better for Jack to be okay to play another day. You know, Bert will go out there, he'll do well. It, it gives more opportunity for the right thing to be done. So I'm, I'm very much for it, that's for sure. It's all about responsibility, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. You know, and one of my final questions, Gary, is you look at retirement for sport, for sporting people. I mean, it, it's always a, it's a tough time, isn't it? You're leaving something that you loved. But let's say you've picked up a lot of knocks in your career, you know, in any sport. We could talk about your experience as well, Gary. But does it always linger in the back of your head of when is the right time to retire? Would you rather... No, it's, it's because some people, some sportsmen, they have retired because of concussion. Concussion has taken their career away from them without their decision. So to make it easy and, and to retire on your own terms in any sport, I mean, what is the right time? When, when you're thinking you've had concussions in the past, does that linger the thought of, okay, I have to think of when's the right time to retire because I don't want to do any more damage to myself. Yeah, there's never a right time <laughs> because it's, it's a, yeah, a less wrong time, perhaps. Uh, so I, I retired from my combat sport by default. Uh, I had a broken tooth that was high up in the, uh, the bone structure uh, and I required a little bone graft and a tooth implant. At the age of 39, that took me out of combat sports for nine months. Uh, when I returned, no one was going to invest in a 39-year-old, even though I could probably still be competitive now and still, I was still sparring for some whippersnappers back in the boxes. Uh, you know, I'm still keeping good shape. And that's even with, a, I've got an artificial hip now, I've got a hip replacement, and I'll still kick, kick you know, nicely and put them back in their boxes. Uh, so for me, I kind of retired by default. 
uh, because no one was paying the money and I wasn't getting the opportunities and the opponents that I needed. Uh, I was starting to be lined up as uh, uh, basically a, a name fodder for up and coming fighters. Uh, it's like, well, you know, what, what have I got to gain from, from doing this? Um, so I retired by default with my injury um, just because it wasn't worth me doing what I was doing again because it was my business as well as a professional. Um, but it's, it's interesting. There's something called transition in sport. And most athletes will probably have a difficult transition from having a life where your identity is your sport and your sporting performance to suddenly no longer doing that sport. Um, and I think it hits uh, some sports a lot harder than others. Uh, for example, American football, for example, there appears to be horrendous transition from sport for them. They go from being an absolute god, a legend, to heck, what do we do now? Whereas for combat sports, we're generally not paid that much anyway and still got the rest of our lives still running. Not only that, we still train, we still coach, we still, you know, we, we, we still keep active. So the transition for combat sports is probably nowhere near as bad as, as sort of the, the higher paid, high profile sports like, like the NFL. Um, and, you know, we, we see the difficulties with football players when they when they leave. How many football players will, you know, end up uh, uh, as alcoholics uh, or uh uh, have business failings and lose their money you know um, it's it's quite a, you know it's quite a, a tragic uh, set of affairs uh, injury wise it's always down to an individual um, some people need to be told when to retire you've had too many hits stop it you know you know you, you, you're not going to have a have a life anymore you know stop it stop it stop some people need good mentors good coaches good friends to say oi family even stop it enough yeah enough is enough uh, others oh, heck it's, it's it's funny it's like me there's always one more fight we've, we've got this you know when, one, when, when more, you... one more fight i've, I've seen i've, I've heard yeah. it all the time one more match one yeah, more yeah, yeah. um you know it's 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 always that sort of thing in, in the back of your mind thinking you don't yeah. want to give up it's that sporting mentality never give up isn't it and it, it. It's, that, it's that whole sporting mentality but there's so many things that sportsman needs to to, to 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 take into consideration their family they want to watch their kids grow up they want they want to you know be there for their wives and, and girlfriends and, and so what you know so it's kind of two ends of this it's, it's like a, it's like a, a tug of war passion and and and, and family and it, it's 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 that tug of war isn't it yeah it's very very difficult uh, you know, I, I was always driven to be the best, and I suggest that any any high level uh, sports person is driven to be the very best at everything they do. I was quite lucky uh, when I retired. Um, I wanted to keep in shape because it's the one thing that's been consistent through my life is my physical abilities. Um, it is, you know, forms part of my current identity and my lifetime's identity. So I wanted to keep in shape. Um, so I started running uh, and I was running with a friend's dog and I thought that's pretty cool. So I've got a couple of Huskies uh, and Huskies need a lot of running. If you're not up by eight o'clock in the morning, they get you up to take you running. That was 10 years ago and it's still, still like that now. So I started running with them. And I thought, I can't tire them out. And then someone said, why not do an ultra marathon then? So I started doing 40, 50 mile races across the Brecon Beacons in winter with the Huskies, things like that. I was just like doing crazy stuff with them. Uh, and you know, it's like, why, why run uh, when you can do an ultra run? 
Uh, it's just, <laughs> it's that crazy thing of going forward. It's like, I've always been a geek who's self-studied. Uh, now I'm doing a doctorate. Why am I going back doing a doctorate at this age? Because I can, you know, you don't do things by half. Um, and I remember my first supervisory meeting. It was carnage. I had my, I had my three supervisors and my, my fourth supervisor, uh, John, my, my, my unofficial mentor, brilliant he is. Uh, and it was absolute carnage. It basically tore my research project apart and it was brutal. It was it wasn't even Custer's last stand. It was, it was like, I didn't last that long because they basically said, look, Gary, you're trying to do 10 highly complex PhDs in one. And they're like, focused and narrow, Gary, focused and narrow. We've got to strip it back, strip it back. And I was like, exploded by it. Oh my God, I'm trying to do too much. But now I realize why. Now I'm a couple of years on, I'm realizing why. Um, so I'm driven to be the best at everything that I do. Yeah. But now I've got a gorgeous girlfriend. Um, she had a kid when she was 16 and uh, her, her daughter's her best friend. Uh, and now I've basically got two grandkids. Um, and it's, it's really amazing. Now my focus is changing again. And perhaps it's a, a lesson that I've learned that I could have done with learning one heck of a long time ago. Um, and it's kind of a teaching tale perhaps for other athletes. You know, we're driven to be the best. How about now just being the best person that you can be for your family? Yeah. That's what drives me now. That. I can live by that. Well, Gary, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat to you. I've really enjoyed it. Um, athlete to another athlete, it's been just great to get that message out there. And hopefully the people that will listen to the show will really understand more about, you know, about sport and, 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 and um, doing the right thing um thank yeah i mean you've you, you've been a fantastic host uh, and what you're doing i think is important work because you're you're not just going these guys are great they're awesome look at these celebratory people you're actually taking difficult subjects that people may not want to hear and discuss and them. listen you yeah. got it so thank you for giving a platform to give a balanced perspective on sport because everyone talks about the sporting ideals and how great sport is Absolutely. hang on a sec there's also a downside here let's talk about the downside but most importantly you've quite nicely led it around to what do we actually do about it as well so thank you very much you're doing i think you're doing a world of service thanks Karen. That, that that's that's the main thing that's what i want to try and do um, and when I get on BBC Radio One, then we can definitely get more um, <laughs> more of this spoken in. But Gary, I'd love the chance to meet you as well sometime. Maybe we can go for a, a sparring session or a run. That would be um, pretty good. Uh, so That'd be uh, awesome, really that'd be awesome. A pleasure. But thank you so much, Gary. Thank you so much. My pleasure. You take great care of yourself. Thank, thank you. you. Have, a, have a good rest of your day, Gary. Cheers, Gary. Thanks. Bye, mate.